Greetings, people of Earth, and welcome to UFO Mod Pod. I'm Jason McClellan. Ryan Sprague. And we are a dynamic duo today. Maureen can't uh, be here with us because she's big and important and at some conference uh, across the pond, as they say. So we're we're missing a Maureen today, but Ryan and I have you covered. Thanks for joining us for this December 15th, 2016 episode. We've got an interview with our wonderful friend Amy Shira Title coming up in a bit, so stay tuned for that. Um, I want to point out that Mr. Ryan Sprague has been extremely busy promoting his fine book, Somewhere in the Skies, A Human Approach to an Alien Phenomenon, lately. He's made several appearances on radio shows and podcasts lately. Ryan, I don't know how you do it, man. I, I, every time I uh, check Facebook, um, looks like you've been on another, <laughs> done another interview, <laughs> and you're, you're already extremely busy enough. But uh, yeah, it seems like you've been making the rounds. Um, have any uh, interviews or shows in particular stuck out? Because I know shows are so different, um, and the vibes are always different in that particular moment. Um, so has there been a favorite one you've done recently? Ah oh, man, um, I I I can't pick one. They've all been very dynamic and uh, That's different. Awesome. Yeah. Um, there was one I recently did called uh, "Oh Culture," um, which was really cool. This dude, um, Ryan Peverly, he he mixes uh, the topic he's covering in the interview with uh, EDM music, which is really cool. That's interesting. Um, and he'll find a way to mix the song into like kind of what the theme of the episode is. Uh, so that was really awesome. I, you know, I talked about my UFO sighting in that and how I was listening to Green Day when it happened. So what did he do? He found a really cool EDM version of um, a Green Day song from American wow. Idiot. So he he really takes his time with these things. He's super passionate and uh, and new to the whole podcasting realm. So yeah. it was really cool to get on the ground floor with him on that. Um, otherwise. Um, I, I spoke to the guys over at Mysterious Universe recently, and those guys are just amazing. Yeah. The research they put into it. And um, from that one alone, I've received like dozens of emails from listeners telling me about their UFO sightings and experiences. Wow, that's cool. Oh my God, man. So I am, I'm loving getting these emails, hearing about UFO sightings from all over the world. Yeah, that's um, amazing. Not just on the Western front. So, um, yeah, it's been super exciting. Um, a lot of these were recorded a while ago and mm -hmm. are just releasing. Um, so I haven't been as busy, uh, recently as you'd think these were all sort of in the wings waiting. Yeah. Um, but it's been really exciting just getting the word out there about the book and just the topic in general. Uh, there's so many exciting things happening in the UFO field now and uh, that younger, generation is really getting their voice out there like we are and uh i'm loving it man i i i, I hope to hear you on a few uh in the coming weeks and months <laughs> well it's definitely coming up um well, i'm happy to let you guys know that my book only weirdos see ufos an introduction to the public's mis misperception of unidentified aerial phenomena and extraterrestrial life is now available in kindle format and you can get ryan's and my book on amazon but ryan i know you and i have talked about this but I had no idea, but it is surprisingly a pain in the ass to get a book uh, converted from a print version to a Kindle version. If you're doing it yourself, yeah. which I did, you know, Rogue Planet uh, published this book. So, you know, we did it um, and, you know, I'd done the layout and everything for, for the print version. And if you're not just, you know don't care what the book looks like in Kindle format. If you don't have defined pages, you want to remain pages to make it, you know, a better presentation for the reader and having yeah. your chapters separated and everything. Um, unless you have just like a plain 
a Word document or something, uh, doing that print version to Kindle version is a very difficult, uh, <laughs> time-consuming process. It took me a long time to get it figured out and to get it to display um, in a way that wasn't just absolute garbage. <laughs> That's such a good point, man. And, you know, you know, being naive as I am, I thought, oh, it's just like a PDF of the print version. But exactly. as you've seen, that's not true. That's um, what it should be. It makes no sense right. that it's not. But for whatever reason, the, the conversion process, the Kindle format, it does not read and recognize the same things that, you know, uh, really everything else does. So. Right. Well, I'm glad to see you did it because, you know, we live in a digital age and ebooks are essential. Yeah. So many people read books now on their e-readers and uh, uh, I'm so happy that you decided to put the time and effort into it because um, people people will only read uh, digital versions of things now. Yeah. So um, the fact that you you really took the time to make that presentable for them. Uh, is that a word presentable? Let, let's make that a word. Um, let, let, let's go with presentable. That works too. Yeah. All right. Can you tell I've uh, you know had what? too we, much coffee? Yeah, no, I can tell for sure. And you know what? We, that happens a lot, especially when we're doing these shows. We should start keeping a running list of the words we make up because it happens <laughs> all the time. Uh, but you know what, Ryan? You bring up a good point here with, uh, you know, we're, we're big believers in, in uh, taking content and using that in as many ways as possible and presenting it in as many formats as possible because there are audiences for everything. People have different preferences. Um, and I just had this great idea. What we need to do, Ryan, is mm-hmm. we need to do audio audiobooks. And what we need to do is I need to read yours and you need to read mine. Oh, <laughs> it's a deal, my man. That sounds amazing. Well, don't hold me to it. That's just a, a idea in my mind right now. That sounds kind of fun. I'm so sick of hearing my own voice at this point, and uh, especially <laughs> that voice inside my head with yeah. my own writing. So it would, I would love to hear someone else's uh, yeah, take. Yeah, no, that's an it's an interesting concept. I'll, we'll we'll have to talk about that some more. But <laughs> I like the idea right now. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I'm with you. It's it's kind of weird, um, you know, especially when you you've putting your your thoughts um into into words into writing and you know then like reading that in your own voice it's kind of weirds me out yeah yeah we'll, we'll leave that to the readers for now. yeah <laughs> all right well like i said you can get our books at amazon.com um yeah and as ryan mentioned i've got some interviews coming up i'll be on podcast ufo with martin willis on december 21st so uh check that out a few other appearances coming up in the new year as well and ryan's appearing at the international ufo congress in phoenix arizona february 15th through the 19th and ryan what is the date um you're giving your lecture I actually just found that out recently. I will be um, the opening act for my publisher, Richard Dolan, on the Saturday of the UFO Congress. So bright and early, I'll be the first talk on Saturday morning. Um, So if you're attending, uh, get that coffee and that Danish and join me in the uh, conference hall. Yeah, that's a great way to start the morning. And uh, it's, it's fitting that you're opening for Rich. That's good. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, it's better than following him, for sure. <laughs> it, yeah, it, may, it certainly is. But also for people who like don't aren't familiar with Rich and uh, you know don't know how great the content he is that he presents, um, you know, he's not always super dynamic like in his voice, especially in the morning. So yeah. it's good that you're warming up the crowd. They'll be That's ready for I'm him, and with. they'll be able to then absorb what he's saying. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, Let's talk about 
there have been some interesting stories recently, Brian, in the news, but uh, I want to talk about this one um, that has to do with the moon, because I'm a big fan of the moon. Um, I'm, you know, in that party that is very anxious to get back to the moon. I think we abandoned it. And, uh, you know, there's definitely still a lot to explore there. I think I'd have to double check this, but I think the last time I I did research on the moon, um, the area of the moon that we've actually um, actually spent time exploring is only the size of like a soccer field. Yeah. Which is nothing, right? Yeah. Granted, the moon is not that big, but... You know, it's a lot bigger than just a soccer field. There's a lot still to explore, and we need to explore underground. People are tired of hearing me talk about subsurface environments, but uh, on the moon and Mars uh, especially, those are where I think we need to explore the most. But, uh, yeah, interesting story about the moon. So uh, why don't you go ahead and, and tell us about that, Ryan? Absolutely, man. So, yeah, we all know about the claims that the first moon landing was a hoax. Right. Uh, but there is apparently a German team of citizen scientists that plan to return to the original Apollo 11 site and put this hoax to rest. Yeah. Um, so the German team is known as the part-time scientists, and they've partnered with the company Audi to send a robotic lunar rover within 200 meters of the Apollo 11 lunar roving vehicle. Uh, their plan is part of the team's entry into the Google Lunar X Prize, a competition which pitched pits teams of scientists and engineers against one another in a race to develop low-cost robots. It's a really capable. cool program. Yeah. Um, to, you know, explore the lunar orbit. And like you said, like, we don't give the moon enough love. So, you know, while the hoax debunking is part of their mission, they add that it's not their only reasoning for going to the moon. Mm-hmm. And a uh, a spokesperson from the part-time scientist stated that, quote, this is a mission about the challenges that lie in the 384.400 kilometers that separate the Earth from the moon. A story about breaking rules, going places where no one else dares to go, about trying failing and trying again and about the strongest most powerful fuel of all pioneering spirit um i I love that quote it's you can you can see the passion in these german scientists already so yeah man this could potentially put this conspiracy theory to rest or people will just say that whatever they found was cgi'd or placed there when they arrived (laughs) we know we know the conspiracy theories already so yeah yeah man i'm excited to hear what they come up with yeah, and I've been excited um, since I heard about the Google, um, the X Prize, and, and this competition. You know, these are, this is not the government. You know, these are just like individual, uh, private, or you know, just regular scientists and, and kids yeah. in a lot of the cases, just college kids um, putting together these rovers that are going to go up there and basically race on the moon, NASCAR on the moon. I wrote an article for, <laughs> for Tom DeLonge's company, To the Stars, called something like NASCAR on the moon or something about this particular story. But uh, yeah, I mean, having all of these non-government bad guy people, you know, putting their product on the moon, mm-hmm. you know, you'd like to think that whatever information they're collecting, you know, people would take a little more seriously, people who mistrust the government for whatever reasons. But no, I, you know, you and I know, and many of our listeners know, it doesn't matter what kind of evidence you present to certain people. They've already decided what they're going to believe about uh, our ability to get to the moon and, you know, whatever lies are being told. So yeah, you're right. It it won't do with don't won't do a thing for for some people. But I'm excited to uh, 
have these people with these ideas um, trying to put some of this to rest. And our guest today, Amy Sheratitle, you know, has done a, a few videos about, uh, you know, addressing some of the, the lunar conspiracies. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I recommend checking some of that stuff out. Yeah, and you do have to wonder why we haven't been back to the moon since. And Amy and I do discuss that briefly in the interview. So That's stay awesome. tuned for that, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Well, in our effort to provide a modern introduction to the UFO phenomenon for new generation, on each episode of the show, we highlight a historical UFO case. And today, we're highlighting the Rendlesham Forest incident of 1980. Yes, we've covered Rendlesham on the show before, but there's justification for revisiting this iconic case. While we may have indeed covered the Rendlesham Forest incident in a past episode of UFO ModPod, we thought it would be good to return to the case this December, considering a new witness has just come forward to tell his story of what he experienced in the woods that night. In late December 1980, there were a series of reported sightings of unexplained lights near Rendlesham Forest in Suffolk, England which have become linked with claims of UFO landings. The events took place between December 26th and December 28th. The case was later investigated by the UK Ministry of Defence, but it concluded there was no evidence of alien visitations or any national security risk, and the sightings were most likely the result of beams of light from a nearby coastal lighthouse but many of the witnesses that night debunked that theory right out, knowing full well that what they saw was no lighthouse. And one of those witnesses was Steve Lungaro. Lungaro, a former U.S. Air Force military police officer based at the airbase at the time, remained tight-lipped about what he'd seen in Rendlesham Forest for the past 36 years. But he recently came forward to state that, quote, I think it was something not from this world. Longero was guarding the weapons storage area that night. He stated, quote, While on duty that night, we had a very sophisticated alarm system, and everything just went off. And then I could see these lights over the treetops, and I was thinking, what's going on? Longero would later state that he observed, quote, fluorescent colored lights. I could see them hovering over the treetops like an eye that was following everybody. And then it exploded into a blinding light. Along with other personnel, Longero was ushered away from the site and told to go back to base. He said at a debriefing afterwards, the witnesses were sworn to secrecy as the base had nuclear weapons on site. Since the events in Rendlesham Forest, There have been many conflicting stories as the events occurred over three consecutive nights. Perhaps one of the most telling stories came from the deputy base commander, Charles Halt, who was sent out to investigate, recording everything that was happening. He described very similar events to that of Lungaro, going even further in stating that whatever the lights were, they were sending down beams that seemed to pierce the bunkers where the nuclear ordnance was being held. Of the events, Colonel Halt once stated, quote, Here I am, a senior official who routinely denies this sort of thing and diligently works to debunk it, and I'm involved in the middle of something I can't explain. 
Larry Warren, the original whistleblower on the entire Rendlesham affair, has taken a lot of heat since coming forward, many stating, Colonel Halt included, that he was not even in the forest that night, nor even on the base, and that he made up his involvement with the entire incident. But Longero did go on the record, stating that he had no doubt that Larry Warren was indeed out there and saw what he said he saw. No matter the contention amongst witnesses, it is clear something extraordinary happened over the three nights in December of 1980 in Rendlesham Forest. Yeah, Ryan, this is pretty fascinating. Um, you know, some people get really annoyed hearing about old cases. You know, old cases are historical and they should remain in history. Let's talk about something new, not something old, uh, much like Roswell. But, you know, there are new things that come out. And whether or not they can be validated is another thing. But it's interesting here to have another witness come forward to this very old case and a Larry Warren supporter. That's interesting. Yeah, I was. that is such a great point, man. There's so much contention with the original whistleblower on the Rendlesham event, Larry Warren. And uh, even the deputy base commander, Charles Halt, um, says that he doesn't believe that Larry Warren was out there that night, that he's yeah. a wannabe. He made this up. But now we have Steve, a new witness coming forward, uh, corroborating Larry's story, saying that he saw him out there. So, you know, if anything, it only strengthens the uh, testimony of the original whistleblower uh, and corroborates even the story of Charles Halt at what he'd seen. This this guy, Steve, says that he saw what Charles Halt saw. So, um we we do have to take that in consideration. And like you said, while this may be an old case, uh, the fact that new witnesses are still coming forward makes it an ongoing case. And uh, this is Britain's Roswell, and we love it and hate it dearly. But um, in this month of December, uh, what better way to bring in the new year with uh, a new witness to the Rendlesham case? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I love this case. I know it's near and dear to your heart. Um, I know... Like I said, so many people are sick of hearing it, but sorry, guys, we're <laughs> this is not the last time we're going to revisit this case. And in fact, we're probably going to go even deeper in it because we like to bring up this old stuff and, uh, you know, have a discussion about it, uh, breathe new life into it and keep people interested in these important cases. So um, I foresee us in the future having some of our friends who were involved in this case and have personally uh you know, been key researchers into these important incidents on the show to not only talk about the case, their involvement with the case, but also about this new witness. Definitely. Well, let's go ahead and move on to our interview today with spaceflight historian and television and YouTube personality, Amy Shira Title. Hey guys, so today I'm here with Amy Shiratito. Amy is a spaceflight historian, author, blogger, YouTuber, host, and soon-to-be podcaster. <laughs> Amy, thanks for joining us today. I know it's early, so uh, we really appreciate it, you joining us on UFO ModPod. Yeah, no worries at all. I'm very happy to be here, happy to be talking to you. Awesome. Um, so 
you know, we always kind of have to start with the origin story. Some of our listeners might not be familiar with your work. Uh, I doubt that. But um, when did your interest in space history and exploration, when did it really start? It's really too bad that this is audio because I have a great visual for this question because it is actually my most frequently asked question. Because, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I'm a girl, so why do I know about space? Um, I, was, <laughs> I was seven, um, and I, I think, I can't remember if I was assigned it or if I picked it, but I did a project on Venus um, for my second grade science project. And, you know, you have those little kids' space books that give you, like, cartoons of planets and facts and stuff, and I was just obsessed with the fact that Venus, you could see it in the sky, but it was like the Earth turned inside out and spinning backwards and on fire. Um, and I was like, that's so cool. So I had all these books, and in one of them, there was a little cartoon of two men standing on the moon um, in front of a lunar module. And I was just like, oh, wait, wait, people walked on the moon? Why was I not informed? Because I'm from Canada, where there's no NASA, and we don't talk about NASA and astronauts all the time. So I just became obsessed with like wanting to know how and why they did it, and like like any big technology rooted in Cold War, um, the question, the answer gets bigger and bigger the more you ask. Um, so it's just it's just this like childhood fascination about Apollo that's kind of led me into doing this professionally. Uh, that's awesome. I couldn't yeah. think of a better origin I'm story. The, I'm the luckiest nerd ever. Like <laughs> I just get to be. I actually want to get new business cards printed that just say professional space history nerd. Mm. That's the most apt description of what I do. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And I mean, yeah. and you really have carved a place for yourself in sort of this space history niche. And um, could you, I, I guess, sort of run us through how that started and how it was sort of navigating your way, which, which through what I assume, kind of like the UFO field, is definitely considered a boys club. Definitely a boys club. Um, I I sort of started by accident in a lot of ways. I um I finished my master's degree and um, hated it. I hated the uh, I don't know you know I don't know your thoughts on academia, but um, I just was not a fan of like trying to write things to impress an old guard of men who weren't really interested in space stuff. But that's what I self specialized in in my history of science fields. Um, so I actually moved to Phoenix. Um, for personal reasons, not for work, because there's nothing really in Phoenix for me. Um, <laughs> but I, I started a blog as like a way to play around with the space history stuff that I was still having so much fun with, just having finished my master's thesis and was just like so loving archives. Um, and the plan was to like find get a job for the year and then do a PhD and then be an academic because I didn't know what else to do with this nerd love. Um, but then the blog took off in like four months. And people started recirculating my articles and asking me to write for them directly. So it was really just kind of by accident that I became a writer, like a journalist, a space journalist with a, a hit, like a concentration, I guess, if you will, in space history. And that ended up spinning off into the YouTube channel because some people are visual and don't want to read. Um, and then that took off because YouTube actually like took notice of me and, and I've been working with them on some different projects over the years. And it's just been it's just been like. So, like literally throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks and a lot of things seem to be sticking and it's kind of amazing and I'm super lucky about it um and then it, it is that super weird thing that like I I am in this nebulous space where like as much as I research more like I have a bookshelf that would m 
rival most professors' offices. Um, but I, you know, because I'm not in the academic world, like the old guard of space history doesn't really like me because I don't do it the way that they do it. Right. But at the same time, I think it's so much more important to do things for, for like trade publications where people actually read it <laughs> um, as opposed to not. So it's, it is that weird thing where like, you know, not only am I coming at this from an angle that, you know, my, the people, the men that should be my peers don't really like, it's also the thing of like, I look much younger than I am, that people don't really believe that I do what I do. And like, I go to conferences and people are like, oh, so who's white for you? And I'm like, no, I'm, yeah. I'm giving a talk. You know, I, I will be standing next to a male friend and then the, you know, someone will turn to the gentleman and say, so so what are you speaking on? And they'll say, well, I'm actually just here because I'm a fan. She's the one giving the talk. It's just like, yeah, it is very, very weird. But I honestly just kind of like ignore the internet most days and like keep my head down and just like do my thing. Yeah, probably the best way yeah. to go about it. Yeah. yeah, well, we 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 feel your pain. We at UFO Mod Pod are on the younger side as well in our field. And like you said, it's just, you know, the old guard, uh, you know, while we we take a lot from them and we sort of build off of that, um, you got to shake things up every once in a while. And you're definitely yeah. doing that. And you did mention uh, your blog. Could you tell us a little about the blog and uh, how Vintage Space came to be? Yeah, Vintage Space is my blog and YouTube channel. And Vintage Space has had a few incarnations over the years. I'm so sad that Popside just shut down at the blog network one day. Because mm-hmm. um, it was really fun to blog at Popular Science. It just like people know that. They're like, oh, cool. And I'm like, yeah, doing the same thing on WordPress now. And people are like, oh, you're a blogger. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, it's, um, it really just started out as like my little internet baby to like engage in my own nerd stuff and just kind of have a space to play around with ideas and, and share things and just kind of work on my own writing style. And it's evolved over the time. And like, um, yeah, it's just it's been it's a little over six years old. Um, which feels weird to have a blog birthday, but I do, and I do track its its growth. But um, yeah, no, that's the blog story. It's not a very interesting story now that I say it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I started the blog. <laughs> we all have, but um, you really did sort of blow up, and like you said, the the YouTube channel um, just racks up so many hits, and yeah. The YouTube channel, yeah. like I like I literally started this because NASA has so many good pictures and people don't necessarily want to read a 1,500 or 2,000 word blog post, which is like coming right out of academia. That's how long they used to be. Um, so I decided to see if I could do, I know so much. And like that was, I wasn't getting paid when, when they were that long either. That's the worst part. <laughs> um, so, so I started doing like VO of just like images and like playing around in what's the iMovie, like the whole, the whole, these videos are horrible. And like, I didn't know how to be on camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd like gradually got more comfortable with like being a face, but I was still reading. It was just like, it was so awkward. And over the years, I've just kind of realized that if I write the blog post before I do the video, then all the ideas are in my brain and then I can just talk at my camera and it's much more candid and much more natural. And as soon as I started doing that and also got like a real camera and lighting, um, (laughs) that really helped. Um, yeah, it's just like this became an avenue that people really like. Um, and that's awesome. I wrote it down somewhere on a card over on my messy desk, but like I hit a hundred thousand subscribers recently. Wow. Um, which is awesome. That's like a huge milestone for like a tiny little, yeah. you know, it's just me, you know, on a day to day basis, like doing this in my apartment. And I think I gained something like 68,000 subscribers this year to hit that mark. I'm like, that's 
when I stopped and looked at that, I was like, holy crap, that is a lot of people in one year. Cause I've been doing this channel for four years, like off and on, but yeah. since I really dedicated time to it, like, holy crap, people, people like this. So it's awesome. It's like so fun. And yeah. it means that like my favorite is when, when I get, I have like the nicest audience. There's not a lot of awful comments considering it's YouTube and people like leave me these really long comments. of like, Oh, I remember watching this mission launch. I was six years old and my dad let me stay home from school. And it's really <laughs> cute. <laughs> Well, yeah, such a nice audience. <laughs> yeah, I can only well in your passion comes through through the videos. And I think people appreciate that, too, especially in what, you know, is usually a field that can get stuffy at times, I would assume, with mm -hmm. the historical aspect. Um, but yeah, like you mentioned, you know, I heard a lot of people yesterday talking about where they were when this gentleman, um, you know, first landed. Uh, we unfortunately lost one of our greatest, John Glenn, yesterday, uh, as we record this. Um, and you put together a really nice video on your, oh, on your YouTube, uh, Godspeed John Glenn, a unique American hero. Um, do you care to comment at all about John Glenn and sort of like what he possibly meant to you in your research? Yeah, John John Glenn is such an interesting figure because I, I never I never met him, I should say that right up front. Um, but he's such an interesting figure because he's so iconic of that era and it's an era that people sort of hate now because it was you know it was a like I like I kind of mentioned in the video I tried to kind of keep it keep it um more more kind of gentler but like it was the era of the white men basically um and a lot of people are just like it's you know they kind of hate the Apollo era because all you see on the surface is the sea of white men like but at the same time, you sort of like I find John Glenn to be such an interesting character because as much as he was a pilot, like a test pilot, like all seven of the original Mercury astronauts were, he was the one who didn't have affairs and like didn't do anything untoward or seedy. He was just like the perfect American of the 1950s form of like like beautiful wife, two kids and a dog and like went to church regularly and was just like the oldest of the group, but like has this cute little baby face. He's very good looking. Just like you could not be more American and apple pie than John Glenn in the 1950s. And like for him to be also a, a war hero who was the first American in space, it's like, yeah, this is exactly who like America at the time needed to pin their hopes on for like beating the Soviet Union in the Cold War slash space race incarnation of the Cold War. It's just such an... He, Everyone I know who's met him just says he's he like that wasn't that's not a way that we looked at him and like whitewashed his past. It's not like we're ignoring things about him to sort of have this opinion that he was just such a great like American right. hero. It's like, no, everyone I know is just like, no, he was just a really, really great person. Yeah. Like all he did was serve his country. It's like, yeah, you don't get people like that. That's that is a rare breed, I think, of just yeah. this like I am exactly what you see, and what I, what you see is just an upstanding, really good person. And I was uh, like, yeah, that's 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 John Glenn, and I think that's what people need to remember instead of like trying to be like, yeah, he was great, but now we have diversity. It's like, yeah, of course, diversity is like the best thing ever. Yeah. But like, let's let's also look at this guy and be like, no, he in his in his era, he was he was who America needed. He was like the perfect hero in 1959. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. I mean, it's just so good to hear that there there were people like that. And he was pretty progressive as well. So, yeah. um, you, like you said, you know, from, you know, from the military to space to a senator, um, quite a story to behold for sure. Um, well, yeah. 
sort of getting back to the history aspect of it, Amy, um, you came out with a book last year that really stretched our space history muscles. Um, <laughs> could you tell us a little bit about breaking the chains of gravity and how long it took you to write this massive beast? Um, I loved it. I loved it. I'm, I'm almost done with it. And uh, I am learning things that I, you know, being who I am in the UFO field, I I, I should I need know. you to write a blurb on my, my paperback now <laughs> <laughs> for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you did the same for my book. So um, y- you let me know when the uh, second edition comes out. But um, yeah. I had no idea that there was spaceflight before NASA. And that shows how ignorant I actually am about space history and exploration. So, um, yeah, tell us a little about the book, how the idea was sparked to write this. And how long did it take you? You're in the field of space-ish. Ish, um, yeah. ish. <laughs> no, um, the idea came, I mean, like I kind of said with my decision to unceremoniously turn my back on academia, um, <laughs> I just, I kind of, I was just so sick of like finding all these amazing things in space and realizing that nobody knew the stories because they're sort of kept within the academic world. And the people who do have an interest in them don't really go outside that. So like every once in a while, you'll see an article on like Wired or something with some weird space thing, but like, there's not a lot that exists in like trade publications for the general public to get them excited and curious about things that, you know, we kind of take space for granted. Um, and the more I started doing research in my master's and stuff, I sort of got into this like prehistory of NASA, as I call it, and just thought, this is so interesting. And I'm a huge space nerd, and I'm just finding out about this. Mm-hmm. That's not okay. Like, I'm a, like, as an historian, I'm a big fan of like, we should know our roots before we go forward because that ultimately helps us not repeat mistakes and do better things, right? right. Um, so I just, I really wanted to, I wanted to tell the story of the roots of NASA because it's, I think for, for our generation, just because we didn't grow up with NASA in the same way that our parents and grandparents did, right? Like it was established. You and I are both shuttle babies, if you will. And like spaceflight was sort of, you know, it's weird to think that we've lived in a world where people have always been in space. Yeah. If you think about it. Um, but I thought it was, you know, for, for our generation, especially like people kind of take it for granted and are like, why are we not doing this yet? If we can go to the moon, why can't we do this? Like, well, let's actually look at how recent spaceflight is and how hard it is. And that the fact that NASA didn't like pop out of nothing and just like magically go to the moon, there's no space magic. Um, you know, the roots were there for decades and you're building off this stuff. So I wanted to write something that would be accessible for people who aren't giant space nerds. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's just a history book. There's no, there's very few numbers in there. And one number that is a giant typo. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I know I get emails once a week about the speed of the X-15. It's not 8.7 million miles per hour. <laughs> well, darn um, it. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a correction for the next edition. It's uh, it's it's in with my publisher. Um, but yeah, no. So I wanted to write this to kind of get it, get this story out. It's so inspirational and so interesting for for the general public. Um, so it was sort of born um, out of my master's thesis a little bit. Actually, the original idea for the book, which I'm sure you can can understand, like when you decide to write a book, how many incarnations the idea goes through. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So the original book was like much, much lot, like bigger in, in scope. And I um, actually had this very odd thing happen where this, uh, an editor from Norton Liverlight emailed me and was like, I can't acquire titles, but I love your work and I want to help you. So I just like, you know, informational interview, like we talked and I was actually, I think the last time I was in New York, um, he, I had lunch with him. I was there for a writer's conference and I had lunch with him and he proceeded to tell me that my idea was too big to break it in half at the creation of NASA 
well, that was, I was just like, well, that's the only place to logically do it and like make it two parts. He's like, yeah. And then just like start with one and then do the other. And like, you're fine. And then he ate off my plate and then I never saw him again. Um, <laughs> it was the greatest. He's in my thank yous actually. Cause that was the most impactful lunch ever. But, um, yeah. So once I kind of broke it down, broke it in half, it was just like, well, that's smaller. That's easier. Um, and then it was just like, you know, two years of researching. And then I, my publisher came to me, which was nuts. Um, and I, I think I wrote the bulk of the book, like the bulk of it probably in like eight months, Wow! which is the scary part. Cause at the same, like, yeah, I signed a contract for two years from contract to delivery. Mm-hmm. Fine. But then I like broke off an engagement and moved across the country by myself in that time span. <laughs> so like that was a lot of things that was happening in my life. And it's just like, Oh, I have to write a book now. So like literally I like landed in LA and I was like, all right, I've got eight months. Yep. Let's not, let's not, let's not leave the house. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So at least like, you know, I had all the bit, I had bits and pieces done. It was just a matter of like actually doing it and like making it sound good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's, that is quite a, uh, a story about how the book came to be. That's amazing. Um, in in some aspects. (laughs) Um, well, Amy, I mean, this is a UFO podcast and I'm sure our (laughs) listeners are getting a little anxious. I, I have to ask you. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the UFO phenomenon? You've had to have heard some pretty weird stories from astronauts or members of, um, you know, NASA about sightings in space. Could you, are there any that come to mind right now that you found of personal interest? The one, there's two that always come to mind when I think of UFOs. Um, the first, and this is actually one that I was asked about recently, so there is a, a video coming, is the um, the transient lunar phenomena, um, which was like this weird, there's a report about it that came out in about 1958 um, that's looking at, at odd light and color phenomena on the moon. And in the 50s, no, when no one knew whether this was like a naturally occurring thing, whether they knew the moon had no atmosphere, so like what could these lights be? Might it be aliens? Um, these this is like these have been recorded for for centuries. Like I think this report goes back to like like the 1600s with these weird light and color flashes on the moon. And just because this became such an issue for NASA when it was like a newborn institution of like what do we do if these transient lunar phenomena turn out to be aliens on the moon? Um, that's that's one that I always look to is like this is pretty interesting. And maybe that's more alien and not UFO. And I'm sorry, in my head I kind of put them together because um, we do it uh, all the time, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> okay, because the I was just gonna say because the other my other favorite UFO story, mm-hmm. you know the story of Apollo 20. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like you and I may have been in the same documentary talking about this at one point. But, um, I think so. Yeah. Apollo 20, okay, just for the record, is not a thing that happened. Um, I'm not saying that it happened, but it is the story that people actually, like, I don't know how this makes the rounds on the internet with such regularity, but apparently on Apollo 20, it was a joint U.S.-Soviet mission to the moon, and they used the command service module and lunar modules, somehow, to pick an alien ship up off the far side of the moon that was first found in orbital photographs from, I believe, Apollo 15. Mm. And inside that is an alien that they bring back to life. Okay. (laughs) Um, That's my favorite, because I don't even know where the roots of that story are. How it happened, yeah, that's... Like, like, how does that even... Because there's, there's, the best thing about it is that there's footage online. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. And it's just like, like who who was able to film something with a fake mission patch 
and a weird hybrid American Soviet flag in what looks very much like a lunar module. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like it looks, it has the same look as like a, a, like a 16 millimeter Hasselblad. Like it looks like the old footage. It's so weird. It's yeah. one of my favorites. Cause it's just like, I don't, I don't understand where this comes from. Um, yeah. Those aren't very good answers. Cause I don't really do a lot of, of UFO things. I, Every time I talk to astronauts about like the strangest thing you saw, they're you know they always have the very scientific answer of well we saw a flashing light and then realized that it was like a panel that had blown off when we released the lunar module or whatever and right. it was spinning and then it was just catching the light as it spun so it looked like a flashing light it looked like it was trailing us but really it was just on the same trajectory as us. Mm-hmm. No, I yeah. mean yeah we we do hear that a lot and we need that scientific methodology to keep things straight and separate the UFO phenomenon from aliens. Um, So I think that's the best way to go about it. Um, Well, you brought up, Amy, the moon. Um, I wanted to talk a little about that. Why why do you personally think, uh, you know, with your historical knowledge of going to the moon, um, why haven't we been there, you know, why haven't we been back there? And Do you think it's worth still exploring? I'm just rubbing my fingers together in the emotion of money right now. Okay. Um, there, <laughs> there's just no money for it. Okay. Um, I think that's kind of really why we haven't come back to the moon. Um, you know, Apollo started losing funding like almost immediately after Apollo 11 landed. Um, and even before funding was going down, it was just not something that was viable. And um, there's never really been like, it's just never been something that we can really do without having a reason to do it like fighting another country because we need war type funding to make a program like that happen so unless spaceflight becomes actually cost effective and we develop a system Mm -hmm. that actually keeps the cost down i can't imagine we'll have a way to go to the moon and have any kind of presence there it's just like not something that humans are quite ready for i don't think um as for whether we should go to the moon, I think there's definitely scientific reasons to do it. I'm I'm more on team science than team inspiration when it comes to spaceflight. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's definitely reasons to go to the moon. It's just a question of do we are those reasons strong enough now, or should we maybe wait? You know, fifty years, a hundred years until we actually have better technology and a better understanding of how to keep humans alive in areas like the moon where there's no shielding from radiation um to actually be effective workers yeah you know that's i'm I'm kind of on the fence there of like is there a reason to be doing this stuff now versus working on development developing the technology and understanding about these different environments more so that when we get humans there and Mm -hmm. we do need to get humans there we can do it right right Yeah, exactly. And I guess that's sort of where the whole idea of private space exploration comes in. Um, Are you, where do you stand on that whole proponent of private, private uh, corporations getting involved in the whole space, new space race, as it were? Yeah, um, new space. Um, New space. Let's, let's, (laughs) let's hashtag that now. Well, that's, I mean, people keep referring to it. It's like, yeah, you know, new space versus old space. I'm like, you know, it's all kind of old space. Um, <laughs> but I'm bunch. Uh, yeah, no, I think, um, I think it's, it's good to have different innovation from different companies. And I, you know, the one benefit that a private company has over government is that like a private company can kind of do what it wants. It can spend as much money as it wants. It can develop what it wants. It can kill people if it wants to be totally honest, yeah. um, without having to go through a huge review. I mean, that would obviously be an inquiry, but like, 
you know, if Elon Musk wants to put people on rockets and they sign up privately, they, you're taking a risk. If NASA does it, as we've seen with with the shuttle shuttle disasters, it's it's a long process of inquiry and fixing or not fixing things. Um, but yeah, it's it's you know that you can take more risks in your private company. Yeah. Um, my my thing with it is like, how much is these private are these private companies doing it for for reasons that like you know Elon Musk is doing this because he wants to go to Mars. Right. Okay, so what's the greater scheme here? Like, you're you're basically doing like a fast, like the Apollo era crash program of we want to get to Mars now, as opposed to well, let's really understand the challenges and work on developing the things, and maybe, maybe we don't know enough to go to Mars yet, which is my own opinion. Um, the other the other thing is like with private companies, they're private, so they don't have to tell me what they're doing. So when Elon Musk says yes, I have this plan to send a hundred people to Mars and this. And I will release no technical details or any firm mission plans. I'm like, so why should I take this seriously if I don't get to see what you're talking about? Right, right. You know what I mean? So it's sort of like, I think at some point the ultimate like happy place, and this is like, you know that scene in The Simpsons where they're like, well, imagine a world without lawyers, and everyone's like holding hands and singing, <laughs> there's rainbows. Like this is my vision for spaceflight, is that like government international governments and private contractors work together so that there's no duplication of technology. Because right. um, I can't help but see like the Falcon Heavy and the insane, what is it, 42 engine behemoth and also the SLS in its heavy configuration. Like these are all just heavy lift vehicles. Instead of developing three of them, why don't we focus on one of them? Good point, <laughs> um, yeah. I, and I, again, because of SpaceX, I don't really know what the benefits are over NASA. You know, it's hard because you can't see it all. Right. But I'd love to see them all working together for something that's like a unifying space program. Yeah, you and me both. And also and also holding hands singing with rainbows. <laughs> with rainbows, yeah. Well, as we've seen, the Simpsons have gotten a lot of things right in the past oh my God, I know. <laughs> 10 years or so, which is a little terrifying. But um, yeah. moving on. Um, well, in terms of like exoplanets being discovered and, you know, things like Proxima B... Um, do you believe there's any hope of finding life out there, even within like our own galaxy, Amy? Um, are we putting a time frame on that? Like hope of finding alien life in our lifetime? Let's say within, or our just lifetime. generally. Let's say within I don't our know. lifetime. I th- okay, I think within our lifetime. Um, I, I won't give away either of our ages, but within our lifetime, mm-hmm. I don't know that we would find life form of like intelligent life that could communicate with us. I think it's more likely uh just given the state of technology that um we would find like confirmed biosignatures of life okay. somewhere but we have no way right now without some like massive leap in technology of actually going there and making any kind of contact right. um yeah i mean you know that's that's in the relatively near future um as for like what kind the other part of that is like what kind of life might there be mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's, I think there's definitely life out there somewhere. I don't necessarily think that there's life out there that wants to enslave humanity like all the science fiction movies show. Um, I think it's more likely that we would find a primitive life. Because also, like, what people always forget, and you, of course, would not forget this, is that, like, when you're looking at exoplanets, you're also looking back in time, right? right? So we have to, we have to find life on that planet in the moment where it exists. Because it might be that we're seeing it after a mass extinction. 
Yeah. Right. And yeah. we might be just missing the life, which means, which is why I think that like we could find sure evidence of past life, but not necessarily like a thriving society. Um, so yeah, I think the odds of finding just, just given that we're looking back in time, we have to find these plants at the right time in their history to support life. I think it's harder to find life, life like us life, mm-hmm. but probably more likely that we'd be able to find like a more basic form of life in the nearer future. Just because I, I imagine, and I should say I am not an exobiologist in any way. Mm-hmm. I imagine that's probably more prevalent. So yeah. yeah, no, that seems that seems very you know safe to say. I mean, obviously we have to take many things into consideration: uh, space, time. Uh, communication, you know, we saw a lot of this in that w- the new movie Arrival, you know, how how much language would play a big part of this. And like you said, like we're uh, we're almost looking into the past if we were to mm-hmm. find that life. So um, it, it's it's fascinating. It's definitely something to ponder, um, hopefully within our lifetime. Uh, yeah. Again, if the Simpsons have everything right, hopefully we will. Um well, or we'll find Mr. Burns drugged up and glowing from radiation in the forest. <laughs> either way, I'll take either one. <laughs> I have so many friends you would get along with in terms of being a Simpsons fan. Um, I'll have to get you connected with them. Uh, well, this this question comes straight from uh, your co-host, which we'll get to in a little bit, Amy, um, Jason. Uh, he felt really bad he couldn't be here today. Um, he's a busy man. Um, his question to you is, if you could journey through the solar system on a kick-ass spaceship and you were searching for extraterrestrial life, where would you go and what one person would you want to be with you? And this could be anyone, a scientist, an Apollo astronaut. Um, yeah, how's that one for a hypothetical? Yeah, um, the the destination is the easy part. Um, I would go to Titan, Saturn's moon Titan, um, in like a in like a party ship. There would be a bar on board. Um, yeah, no, Titan I think is such an interesting place, and like to to be totally honest, like I'm so sick of exploring Mars. Like I want more money for missions to places like Titan because Titan is right the moon that has what scientists suspect is a very similar environment to primordial earth and is actually a really good candidate for potentially having, if not life, the right environment for life to start up. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, I really, really want to see what it looks like with Saturn on the horizon. Like that's just, that would just be amazing. Um, No, I think Titan is such a fascinating, a fascinating world that we have not explored nearly enough. And like, I'm so curious to get like a deep deep look there um the other candidate would be triton uh neptune's moon because there is growing evidence after the new horizons mission to pluto that uh pluto and triton are actually like bodies and they were both captured by neptune one became a moon and one became a dwarf planet if you will in resonance orbiting in resonance with neptune i would love to see if those two things are actually very similar so cool. those are the two. As for the one person to go with, I have no idea. I looked at, he sent me these questions last night and I haven't been able to think of one person. I'm just like, what, like, I kind of just want a human with all the qualities that you need, like a calming presence, mm-hmm. but a very intimate knowledge of the Simpsons, but also a medical degree. Um, and also be an, a mechanic and engineer so you can fix things when they break. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we forget um, you're going to be with this person for a pretty freaking long time. And then I think of like, who could I put up with that long? And yep. the only person I can think of is Pete, my cat. <laughs> hey, 
Hey, we've, we've put animals into space before. We can do it again. We've put animals in space. We know cats don't like zero gravity, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have absolutely no idea what one person I would want to spend that much time with and go that far with. And yeah, so, that's... Uh, that, that's... I think eventually you'll pretty much want to kill anybody. Yeah. <laughs> Mission failed, I guess. Yeah, in terms yeah. of that. But yeah, poor moons. They never get enough, uh, enough love. They don't get so enough love. I'm glad you said the... that. The distant moons are the coolest bodies. Yeah. Like, they they're have some of the neatest stuff going on. I mean, uh, yes. I, I don't know how, how to do it, but, like, if we could have a mission that, like, orbits Saturn and then deploys things to different moons and still talks to itself, like, that would be so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Good. More money for that, please. <laughs> More money for that, indeed. Um, so... You recently started a podcast, am I correct? You're joining us in the podcast sphere. I I did, yeah. yeah. Um, I've done so. I'm I'm launching my own the the Vintage Space podcast because mm-hmm. um, I'm super creative by using the same name for all of my things. It's called brand <laughs> branding people. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I um I did one episode mm-hmm. and uh, didn't really wasn't happy with it. And uh, have since come up with a way better approach to the podcast, and I'm actually really excited. And I'm just dragging my heels at actually recording it again because I'm still like not good at the technical aspects of it. Yeah. Um, yeah so the the podcast, and this is weird because I haven't told anybody that I'm doing it this way yet. So you'll be the first. Oh, um, exclusive. Yeah, I was just <laughs> I was just chatting with a couple of friends of mine. Um, who are avid podcasters. The problem with me doing a podcast is like, I don't listen to podcasts because I'm super visual. And like, if I'm just hearing something, I won't hear it, Mm. you know? So it's hard for me to think of how to do a a podcast. Right. And a friend of mine was like, well, you know, serialized podcasts are really big. I was like, Oh my God, is there a podcast that like does installments of the space race history? Cause every mission or every like event could be a 30 minute podcast. Right. And I just like, I'm going to try that. <laughs> awesome. That... That's, that's, the, that's the elevator pitch that's very bad. But, um, yeah, I've started sketching out, like, how many, how many episodes I could do and then just sort of go back and, like, look specifically at other things if this thing actually does, like, gain enough traction. Like, I don't even know how to think of things in, like, a serialized way of doing seasons. Like, I just – that's not how my brain works. Because right. um, I'm not good at planning things on the long, long term like that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was just like – so I, I'm actually going to try this approach of, like, let's actually just take one technology and tell that story and see if I can, do like, have characters that bleed over so that, like, in half-hour installments every two weeks or whatever – you learn a little bit more that you have a better, a bigger understanding of this era of history that is so, so boiled down mm-hmm. in in modern retellings. That like, yeah, let's let's see if that works. Who knows? I have no idea. The podcast, like, talk about like throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Like podcast, yeah. I have no idea what I'm doing. I am just throwing stuff at the wall and hoping that something's there. <laughs> well, you're uh, throwing something else at the wall, right? Um, what is this thing you are doing with our co-host, Jason McClellan? This is a this is going to be a Rogue Planet podcast. Yeah. Um, I know you, Jason, and I have very similar interests in terms of music and uh, mm-hmm. obviously space. Um, so what what is this? What is this amalgamation yeah. you two have come this, up with? This is the greatest. Uh, this is like, so this is the podcast that I'm actually excited about. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this started actually like as a joke in an email. Okay. Um, when I, I think I put on Twitter that I was looking at podcasts and Jason emailed me and was like, if you have questions about gear, I can help you. And then we started just like joke talking about doing a podcast that was all about 
punk, ska, beer, space, and pets. Because these are like the five things that we both like love unconditionally. Right. <laughs> um, and then it actually grew into a thing that we we're like, we could actually make this happen. And it could actually be kind of awesome because between the two of us, we know a lot of people in these fields. And, you know, we, we want to have you on. We want to just like, like chat and drink beer and just get nerdy about all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is called the Punk Rocker Moon Stomper Podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jason has designed an amazing logo for it that I can't wait to turn into patches and buttons. Um, and and honestly, like what it is, uh, I mean, you know, Jason, mm-hmm. and and we, you know, he's he's just awesome. So basically, what we do is we crack a beer and we talk for an hour. Yeah. And, that, and it's wherever. I mean, we did our first episode, and it is a very long introduction to these five elements of the podcast, mm-hmm. um, and also ourselves, so that people get to know us. But it was just like. It's so much fun to sit and hang out with somebody, someone that you have that much in common with that you get to just catch up with on a weekly or bi-weekly basis and just like have a beer over the internet. It's like, it's the funnest thing ever. And yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait to actually start releasing it into the wild. It is going to be a Rogue Planet podcast and I'm going to host uh, the video version on uh, my new YouTube channel that's more personal. And um, yeah, we're just going to kind of really like hope that this thing picks up steam but it's we're both really really excited about taking this on yeah absolutely and you know these things intermingle more than we 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 think they do um, more than you would think yeah yeah like we we interviewed a gentleman who wrote a book about punk punk rock and ufos um so yeah it's definitely you know cracking that beer just letting loose people like that they like hearing people have conversations they feel like they're in the room and they can be a part of it and i think that's where your video aspect will really come in so i'm super excited to to hear that when it drops and i can't wait to come on and crack a uh a guinness or something with you guys maybe a whiskey i i uh yeah, so we're not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we will never tell you what to drink or tell you that you have to drink, but you will, are welcome to drink whatever you want <laughs> and as much as you want. Yeah, I had a, I had a beer that was like nine percent when we were shooting, like doing our first episode, and I was like, wow, this is uh, this is good. This, this is, is good. This is happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. Awesome. Well, um, Amy, what's next for you? What, uh, are you doing any talks or conventions, or are you working on any new? books uh we've sort of covered the video aspect um yeah. what's all, next for all you the things. all, all of the things okay <laughs> aside from the two podcasts yeah. um i i am working on pitching my next book right now um it's just been you, you know i you again you know you've written a book mm-hmm. um right now it's just kind of honing the proposal down to like the right sellable thing for my agents and then and then hoping that they see what i see in it and just kind of going from there it's just like i just need time to work on it um so that's like my big next baby um continuing on with the youtube thing but i'm also launching uh, i just kind of mentioned it my a second channel um basically a personal kind of vlog style channel just to showcase that as we talked earlier that nerds come in all shapes and sizes and genders and everything that um yeah that i, I want to start showcasing or sharing a little bit of like what life is like when you are a super nerd living largely on the internet doing all kinds of crazy things who has multiple interests because for everybody that says I want my daughter to love science when she starts wanting to date. You also, I keep telling these parents, like, but also let her do other things because you need her to be well-rounded and, like, actually love this stuff and not force her into it. Um, I get a lot of questions from parents and teachers. It's so weird. And I'm like, oh, I don't have kids, nor do I educate children, but I can try to help. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So it's just, yeah, I think it's important to sort of look at the other side of things and have a, 
Yeah, I have no idea. This is like the big social experiment of 2017. So yeah. that's that's the next. Those are the next like big creative things. Yeah, that's awesome, and I'm sure that will be very inspirational to a lot of young women out there um, to not feel like you need to follow a certain path or mold um, that you, you know, sort of this society is carved out for them. So um, yeah, that's super exciting. Um, where can we find out more about all these amazing things you're going to be doing? You can, uh, the best place to probably follow me is Twitter because I tweet everything that's happening. My uh, handle is AST Vintage Space. Um, and also the my, my main YouTube channel is also going to have all the announcements and stuff on it. That's just Vintage Space. Google it and you'll find it. It's it's nice to be up in the search rankings. So I don't have to give you a very long URL. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair enough. And uh, the book is available on Amazon, I would assume? Oh, yeah. I should also talk about the fact that you can buy my book because it's been out for a year. Uh, it's available <laughs> on Amazon, uh, okay. Breaking the Chains of Gravity. And also, if uh, if you do want a signed hardcover edition, I sell them on my website, which is just amysuretitle.com. Um, shipping times are slow, I will warn you, depending on if I have books in my house or not. But I do for Christmas right now, so... Awesome. Get your orders in. <laughs> um, you were my biggest inspiration for that. I, I started doing the same. I totally stole yeah. it from you, and uh, it's cool. It's cool. Like, thinking, is it working out for you? It's it's going. It's going well. Yeah. It's sort of super annoying, isn't it? it it's annoying in the way that like. Uh, the postal service isn't really your friend when you yeah. need them to be, but um, yeah, that's that's what I mean. Like, I love that people <laughs> want to buy it from me, and I like I love doing it. It's really nice to you know people will send me like, oh, is this is for my daughter. Can you inscribe it? I'm like, yes, this is great. But it's also like I live with boxes of shipping supplies and right. boxes of books, and like I'm just not like I need a staff. Like I need an intern to like be my book manager right now. Just. <laughs> That's that's the annoying part is like, oh, my God, and, and you, USPS, like, hates me because of how many international orders they take forever to, to yeah, ship. Yeah, like, yeah. They, like, every time I walk into the post office with, like, 15 books, they're like, they look at me, they're like, oh, it's you. Like, literally, <laughs> they look at me and they're like, you have to wait. I'm like, no, it's the post office. It's first come, first serve. They're like, you have to wait because we don't want to do this. We don't want to do this. The, the, a civil... <laughs> oh. Civil service jobs, they can yeah. do what they want. Oh my god, it was, yeah, I finally figured out how to do the internationals online, and they are so happy. Oh, good, good. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an amazing conversation. Um, I know our listeners will totally dig the whole space aspect, and it's good to know that you're still open to the possibilities of what may be out there. So, um, thanks again for joining us today on UFO Mod Pod. Yeah, thank you again so much for having me. It's been fun. Great. Thanks again to Amy for taking the time to talk with us today. We love Amy. Some of you may remember that years ago when Maureen and I were doing our web series Spacing Out, that Amy was a guest on that show. And she also guest hosted the show with me when Maureen was out of town shooting Uncovering Aliens. Amy also has a lot of interesting things going on all the time. So we highly recommend following her on social media to see what she's up to. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of UFO Mod Pod. As you probably know, the show and other great content can always be found on our website, and that's RoguePlanet.tv. UFO Mod Pod is also on Google Play Music, and of course, you can find the show on iTunes. Subscribe and leave a stellar review if you enjoy the show. Also, we love hearing from you, you know, whether you want to share a UFO sighting with us or you want to make a request of somebody you'd like us to interview or a topic you'd like us to talk about. Uh, we love hearing from you. So you can contact us on our website or wherever we are all over social media. So you can find us there. 
And that's about it. So thanks, guys, for listening. We always appreciate you taking the time to listen to the show. I'm Jason McClellan. I'm Ryan Sprague. And guys, we will see you in the future. <laughs>